0: The UN resolutions have no place whatsoever in any bilateral discussion between India and Pakistan. The entire discussion has got to be on the basis of similar agreement and the UN resolutions should be in the waste paper basket. If you're supporting the UN resolution, I'm sorry, you're not supporting India. India standards that the UN resolution don't count. Are we going to be welcome in a defense, security and technology partnership where China and Pakistan are joined at the hip. Are we going to be able to rely on a country that has today become an associate of China? Thank you very much. You know, I've been in journalism for a long time. So I must say that the Sweden Foundation has, uh, I mean, certainly shown its journalistic skills by giving an extremely (coughs) catchy... Uh, headline to this particular talk. Uh, essentially, what I wanted to, do to to talk to you about is what I believe to be the some of the geopolitical changes that are taking place in the world today. Because we seem to be in a point of, I mean, if I can say so, a point of inflection. A similar point was reached, for example, in about 2012, 2013, 2014, leading to a great war. Similar points were reached in different periods of history and we have a point of inflection today. Going back to journalism, for example, if you are looking at uh, any city, the number one newspaper in a city, pulls in around 70% of the advertising, of the total advertising. The the second newspaper may pull in about 20% and the balance 10% is pulled in by everybody else. Whether it's three, three papers or four papers or 20 papers, the balance 10%. The first number one gets about 70%. That is the advantage that the United States has had for quite some time as the number one, if I may say so, geopolitical power and the number one economy in the world. Certainly since the nineteen the late 1920s, it's had that position roughly a hundred years. As a consequence, the dollar is extremely strong, I mean, uh, that gives a certain amount of flexibility. As An American company, if you look at the way partnerships are taking place between an American company and let's say a company in India or a company in, in Thailand or India, even Japan, uh, China, the American company may be smaller but it always tries to dominate, why? Because You know, it's an American company. It's number one. What are we seeing today? We are seeing today a country which is very close to overtaking the United States as number one. And should it do so, this entire soft power advantage in terms of perception, in terms of the strength of the currency, in terms of the ability of its companies to operate in global markets, in terms of geopolitical positioning, all that is going to completely change. Because, as I said, in a market, if one particular newspaper is number one, then that newspaper gets 70%. If tomorrow the second paper becomes number one, very, very soon, in a matter of 10, 11 years at most, usually three or four, that newspaper is going to get that 70% if it holds on to a number one position. Today, one particular country, I think it's very clear what that country is, is very close to assuming that number one position. That's point number one. Because Let me say that any subject, you know, the problem we have in India, we discuss things in a segmented way, in a certainly in terms of silos. And even, for example, the military silo, you'll have an Air Force silo, Within that, you'll have a pilot silo, you'll have helicopters, you'll have submariners in the Navy, different silos. And the reality of the situation is you need an integrated 360 view to come to a formulation of policy in a country as large as India. So what I want here is to try and present a 360 point of view in which this particular subject comes up. But of course, it's been made the center point of the speech it comes up as a consequence of that 360. So let's talk about, as I said, China coming as the number one thing. That's not all. There's a difference between the American system and the Chinese system. And some 35 and odd years ago, I took a decision that, look, I'm going to concentrate on two countries, the United States and China. Uh, I don't know why it happened. Maybe I looked at the Pacific Ocean, I saw these two countries facing each other. Maybe they were of equivalent size in terms of area. I can't go into the reason why I chose these two countries. But I decided to concentrate on these two countries. Visit them often. Study them often. And try and map their trajectory as much as we can. You know, the Department of Geopolitics, we started that in Manipal in 1998. And we have set up a department if you come there. If you go into, say, London, or you go to, let's say, Hong Kong, or you go to the New York, you get political science and geopolitics from a British point of view, from an American point of view, from a Chinese point of view, we'd like our department in Manipal. And I think Manipal, we are very proud of the fact that we are an Indian university. We are one of the world's best. And we have branches in Durban, in Malaysia, about 40% of Malaysian doctors are from Manipal, Nepal. Uh, Dubai, you name it. Antigua, the American University of Antigua belongs to a bunch of Indians. That is namely, you know, uh, the Manipal University. So we are very proud of the fact that we are Indian and we are very proud of our Indian passport. So we have got this department and this department now about one third of the students who come are coming from outside the country to understand what Indian thinking is. Because I am very clear from the very start, I want to instill thinking which is good for India. And for that, as I said, you know, you have this old chestnut about permanent friends, no permanent friends, no permanent, only permanent interest, yes, I have the same thing now. So you have China. Secondly, now, if you go to United States, I remember going there in the 1990s, when talking to the, you know, uh, Mr. Narasimha Rao was someone who uh, our family knew well, and uh, despite, you know, whatever, he took me a little seriously, and he used to talk to me about various things. And once he suggested to me, "Why don't you go there and find out why is it that we are being treated so badly by the Americans?" So I came back to Mr. Rao and I told him two things. One, the Indian ambassador is wasting his time. Each day that he spends in Washington is a waste of time because nobody in Washington cares anything for India. India is just not on the radar of Washington. If we go. Like, he should identify the best, the most influential senators, the most influential representatives. And he should go to the state, the states where these senators come from. And let's say, for example, a small state, you can have Tennessee, you can have Iowa. These small states may have very important Wyoming, for example, at Dick Cheney. Dick Cheney was not a small guy, but Wyoming was, uh, I mean, a speck on the map in terms of, uh, of the United States. You go to Wyoming, and the Wyoming newspapers will definitely want to talk to the Indian ambassador. So you get your photographed in Wyoming, and the first thing I can tell you that the senator from Wyoming reads in Washington is the paper from Wyoming. He doesn't read the Washington Post. I don't know if he's a Republican, the Washington Times or the New York Times or the New York Post. He reads his hometown newspaper, and there in the front page is going to be a big photograph of the Indian ambassador, at that point in time, it was Siddharth Shankar Ray, I mean, he was a great guy, but unfortunately in the television world, Mr. Ray used to basically, you know, get, if I may say so, uh, he took about 10 minutes to warm up, and in television, you have to take about 3 seconds to warm up. The 4th or 5th second, if you don't warm up, you are finished in television. Mr. Ray took about 10 minutes to warm up, and he, he was brilliant. But unfortunately, after the first three minutes, people just lost him and they never listened. That is the sad truth. A great ambassador, by the way, and a great politician. But the first point was, tell the Indian ambassador, get out of Washington, at least 15 days in a month, go to these important states and ensure that the senators read you in their hometown newspapers, because if you are read there, they're going to pick up the, the... Next time you ask for an appointment, they're going to give you an appointment the second thing i suggested and you know i have a record of making crazy suggestions to people in authority and uh, for, i mean and a lot of these suggestions are made public some of them are not made public but in any case whatever it is sometimes they take it seriously sometimes they don't but uh, second thing i said was the indian american community it's a wherever i've gone i i i made it a point to stay with what I would call Native Americans. It basically means not Indian, uh, you know, Americans. People who are outside the Indian, I mean, not Indian Americans who are, you know, African Americans or Latinos or whites, but not Indian Americans. I want to say that during that time, the Catholics had no use for me. The Protestants had no use for me. The Latinos had no use for me. The only people who were basically Seemed to be interested in what I was saying were the Jewish people, nobody else. And the Jewish people were, I mean, maybe they humoured me or whatever. They encouraged me and they told me, yes, you know, we are are with you. We like India also. And we love, we, we think that there should be a good relationship with India. So from that time, I must confess, from the 1990s, I've had a kind of an affinity with the Jewish people. And at that time, when we talked to people to set up Indian American organizations, a lot of of them were set up in coordination with the Jewish American organizations. So a lot of the organizations that were set up by the Indian American community, in a sense, were modeled on the Jewish American organizations. And I'm happy to say from that period onwards to now, the Jewish American organizations and the Indian American organizations function in very, very good harmony with each other. It's been the case for the last three decades or so. They are wonderful people, and I call them wonderful for simple reason that they're only people who took me seriously. Now, obviously, that is a good enough reason to call people wonderful. But the point is, the Clinton White House was an extremely hostile uh, institution where India was concerned. I used to get meetings in EOB, uh, executive office building. I never could reach the White House during that time, but the next door building. Clinton saw India as a minor power. Clinton said, first thing you must do, get rid of your nuclear weapons. You guys, you should have bullock carts, not nuclear weapons. First thing you should do, get rid of your missiles. What are you doing with missiles? I mean, you know, you have bicycles. Don't you get anything to do with missiles? On Kashmir. For heaven's sake, you have these lovely Kashmiri people who have just thrown all the pundits out. I mean, what could be more wonderful than that? Give them Kashmir. Make Kashmir a Wahhabi zone. And Mr. Clinton put a tremendous amount of pressure. And I have to say this for P.B. Narasimha Rao very quietly, very silently, and very effectively, he resisted that pressure. He continued our program on missiles. He continued our program on nuclear testing. Unfortunately, he didn't test himself. Dr. Manmohan Singh stopped him from testing, because he said the economy will implode if you test. If he had tested, I believe he could have come to power the next time. But he continued that, and on Kashmir, he held the line. So, during that period, the same bunch of people who are now screaming at us for 370, were screaming at us to get out of the valley completely. A BBC, CNN, you name it, all of them, New York Times, Washington Post, well at that time we were much weaker than we are now. At that time we didn't cut and run. And so I'm very confident at this point in time when we are much stronger and the geopolitics has changed a lot, we are not going to cut and run. The point I want to make is, if the White House doesn't like you, fine, go to Congress. In the Congress, if the Democrats don't like you, fine, go to the Republicans. If one section of the Republicans don't like you, fine, go to the Tea Party guys. You know, go to the, the, the hardcore Republicans and frankly, as I said, the good news was during the Clinton White House, the hardcore Republicans were seen as low life. Nobody had any time for them. They couldn't get jobs in think tanks. Nobody would publish their articles like me during the time when, from right from Mr. Vajpayee's time when Sonia Gandhi was very powerful. I was completely driven away from writing anything in Indian newspapers. The only two newspapers would carry me. One was called Radiance of Jamaat-e-Islami. The other was called Organizer of the RSS. So I'm the only guy who used to regularly write for both the Jamaat-e-Islami and RSS. And if you check these newspapers, you'll see a hell of a lot of my writing. Unfortunately, nobody else carried it because they felt, I mean, you know, if I don't like Sonia Gandhi, be something wrong with me. And they possibly, they, they may not be wrong. But anyway, what I want to say is, You have multiple ways and multiple doors in the United States. China is very different. In China, you have the Communist Party core. And if you're not, if you, frankly, if you don't have an access to the Communist Party core, or the Communist Party core suddenly decides that it doesn't like you, every other door is shut to you. I am happy to report that I've been an early supporter of Mr. Xi Jinping. During the Bo Xilai period, I strongly backed Xi Jinping. I have been supporting and saying good things about him ever since. So whenever I go to Beijing, fortunately, I think a reasonable amount of doors are are, are open to me. But I can tell you, if that Communist Party core saw me as not friendly, nobody would meet me. In the United States, that's not the case. If the Trump White House did not see me as friendly, There are at least 20 other locations where I could go. Today, I I find, for example, in in India, a lot of think tankers are coming here. 90% of those think tankers are Democratic Party think tankers or Republican think tankers who said that Trump is a disaster and should never become president. Now, Mr. Trump, for some reason, didn't like such people. You know, I am sure that uh, they all believe that the more you attack somebody, the more that person should like you. Mr. Trump, unfortunately, is very different. If you attack him, he doesn't like you. If you say nice things about him, he likes you. So 90% of the people that we are wasting time on in India, frankly, the people who come and we are giving them access to all kinds of you know, important people are people who have zero, absolutely zero influence in the Trump system in Washington. And like it or not, today, the Trump is the, is the 45th president of the United States, not Bill Clinton not George W. Bush or anyone else. So 90% of these great think tankers are think tankers who are completely out in the cold. I mean, it's, I remember my memories of going to these think tankers that were out in the cold, because there the only ones who opened their door to a guy who came from India. Nobody else opened the door. The Clinton was completely close to Indians. Anyway, so that's the difference. And this is a country. Xi Jinping is an extremely if I may say so, determined leader of his country. He is following in the path of, you no, know, Chairman Mao, for example. When Mao made that speech, I encourage you to go into YouTube and see that speech. China has stood up. What he meant was, China is going to reclaim its position as the middle kingdom, as the number one kingdom in the world. The same situation is now there, so far Xi Jinping is concerned. And Xi Jinping has fused Mao with Confucius. He's fused Mao with, you know, with tradition, with the Communist Party, with anything that is Chinese and is now focusing a lot on the technologies of the future, such as, for example, artificial intelligence and locations like that. Let's say during the 1930s that any one country, I mean, let's say, you know, Japan, for example, focused a lot on atomic, uh, on the atomic bombs and focused on building atomic bombs and so by 1937, 38, 39 Japan got the atomic bomb. I think the history of the war would have been very, very different. Xi Jinping knows that the future tomorrow is artificial intelligence. The future tomorrow is space, space based weapons, uh, laser and various other systems. He knows all these things. And a tremendous amount of money and effort is now going in to ensure that the Chinese move as number one in all these systems. If you look at Huawei, for example, it's at least two years ahead of the nearest competitor in 5G. If you look at artificial intelligence, the Chinese, I think, are possibly, definitely have the edge over the Americans on many of these technologies that are cutting edge and that are futuristic. Now, 5G is a futuristic technology. Uh, you know, I mean, I am the vice chairman of the Manipal Advanced Research Group. A lot of very good advanced research comes in Manipal, and I am happy to tell you, as the vice chairman, I know nothing about any of this. I am a complete layman, but I think I can look at a person in the eye and find out if the guy is worth supporting or not, and whether he's you know intelligent or not. And that's my role. As to what he's doing, what he is saying, what he is presenting on all kinds of slides. I'm sorry, it's not for me. Slides are not my scene anyway. But what I want to tell you, this steady march is happening so far as China is concerned. Now, you have this Belt and Road project. The Belt and Road project essentially is a project where the Eurasian landmass is sought to be brought together and linked together through this network. It's a project for the Chinese diaspora. And Xi Jinping is basically saying, look, if you're ethnic Chinese, you can be in Calcutta, you can be in Bangkok, and may I tell you that whether it's Malaysia, whether it's Thailand, whether it's the Philippines, whether it's Canada, in large parts of the world, ethnic Chinese are very much on top so far as business is concerned. Malaysia, for example, Mr. Zakir Naik, so long as he's abusing Indians, there was no problem. I mean, Mahathir Mohammed was tolerating him and giving him a pat on the back and saying, fine, go ahead. But the minute he started abusing Chinese, he got into a serious problem. The poor fellow is going to go somewhere else. He'll probably land up in Qatar. I don't think he's going to come to India, but he's he's definitely likely to leave Malaysia. So the same thing happened even in Pakistan, you know, where you had some people who went and abused the Chinese, and lo and behold, Mr. Musharraf went into a Lal Kila and went. So the point I'm trying to say is, Systematically, the effort is there to have, I would not use the word domination because, you know, I'm friendly with the Chinese, I'm friendly with the Americans, I'm friendly with both. I'd like to remain friendly with both, but uh, definitely the prime, uh, number one position in the Eurasian landmass. And the Eurasian landmass is the second most important, if I may say so, geopolitical structure in the world. The most important geopolitical structure in the world is the Indo-Pacific. What is some of us have for a long time been saying the Pacific and the Indian Ocean need to come together and it's come together in the form of the Indo-Pacific. That's the most important. So today you have China as very possibly in my view already the number one influence in the Eurasian landmass. Inside Europe today, whether it's Greece, whether it's Bulgaria, whether it is Italy, country after country is now becoming more China friendly than US friendly, country after country. It's signing on to the Belt and Road project. It's signing on to these Chinese uh, projects. And that is taking place at a very steady pace. I met some of the people who are very close to Xi Jinping. They're all in their 40s, I can tell you. Some of them are in their 50s. They're exceptionally bright guys. Uh, Some of the, uh, you know, I met bureaucrats in India. I met bureaucrats in the United States. They're wonderful people. But these guys, I can tell you, are very, very bright guys. They are very focused and they are focused on, as I said, the Middle Kingdom strategy. So now what do we have left? We have the waters of the Indo-Pacific. We have space. We have undersea. And we have virtual space. Virtual space is basically the internet, internet internet-enabled systems, etc. If domination comes in these systems as well, then there will be no rival to China in the future, and they are looking at domination in the oceans, in virtual space, in outer space, and in various other in the various other important uh, you know uh, geopolitical dimensions. They are looking at being number one in all of them. Now that is a, a point which I want you to reflect on. The second I wanted to reflect on, there are today very definitely two armed camps before the first world war, before the second world war, there were clearly two armed camps. Today you have a camp led by, you know, you for a long time, you had a camp led by the United States and which having the NATO powers, etc. Back in 19 uh, 2001, I gave a proposal, something like called Asian NATO. My argument was the Americans are a quadricultural country. There's Asian culture, there's Latin American culture, there's African culture, there's European culture. It's not a unicontinental, unicultural thing that's only European. So if you want to deal with Asia, have a separate arrangement with Asia. Don't bring these pesky Europeans in because we have mem- memories of their you know, colonial, this thing. And I, I, I in my view, in, the, in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Libya, all these places... Because the former colonial powers were brought in, it is part of the reason why they made such a big mess of that. But the point I want to stress is today, there's an alternative and a very powerful military alliance that has come up. There's China, there's Russia, there's Pakistan, Turkey is now moving there, there is Venezuela, there is Iran, there are some other countries as well. And this military alliance is slowly gaining speed and gaining traction in terms of military ability and military capacity. <coughs> now, I mean, if you're looking today at the alliance system, now, if you you know, I saw on, on a particular television channel yesterday celebrating that Russians have stood by India. I'm sorry, I would like to see India and Russia as the best of friends for the next 50 years, Uh, definitely. But in the United Nations, what Russia said was, the UN resolutions, not only bilateral, not only the, the agreements reached on Simla, but the agreement reached in Lahore, God knows what that is, frankly, even I am not able to understand what exactly was the agreement reached on Lahore, and the UN resolutions. The fact is, when we go into Simla, the advantage of Simla was, The UN resolutions went into the waste paper basket, which is where they belong. The UN resolutions have no place whatsoever in any bilateral discussion between India and Pakistan. The entire discussion has got to be on the basis of similar agreement. And the UN resolutions should be in the waste paper basket. The fact that uh, Russia has specified and has given primacy to the UN resolution seems to have been missed by some of our television anchors. Now, our television anchors are brilliant people. They are absolute geniuses. And thank God for them, it's because of whatever, I mean, it's entirely because of them that this country is doing whatever little good it's doing. And uh, I mean, the rest of us are responsible for anything nasty, but our anchors are certainly responsible for good things. But they seem to have missed out by saying, oh, Russia supported India. Look, if you're supporting the UN resolution, I'm sorry, you're not supporting India. India's standards that the UN resolutions don't count, and of course, in my own case I was a little unhappy that uh, we had an involved defense, we want this, we want similar. I think I would have been much happier if we just simply said, look, this is our internal matter. It's none of your business, we're not prepared to discuss it, you can do what you like with it. It's just not our, it's a completely internal matter of, of India, and we don't we're not involved in this at all. You do, you say what you like. But we are not going to discuss it. But then we went into philosophy. And Simla. And peace. And whatever it is. All that is lovely. I mean peace is lovely. I am a UN peace chair by the way. I am a UN peace (coughs) professor. I love peace myself. But all I am trying to tell you is. Today frankly. Russia and China are joined at the hip. China and Pakistan are joined at the hip. If A and C are linked. And B and C are linked, A is linked to C. I think what little mathematics I've studied, I think that's very clear. So if Pakistan is joined at the hip with China, and China is Russia is joined at the hip with with uh, with, with China, it stands to reason that there is an explanation why the Russian position has, is so different from the past, because today times have changed. In the old days, in the 1971, for example, we had an agreement, Mrs. Gandhi, I think D.P. Dhar, Durga Prasad Dhar was the master, the person behind that agreement, uh, a a brilliant uh, tactical person, a brilliant genius. In that agreement, Russia was anti-China. Russia was hostile to Pakistan. Russia was, of course, very hostile to the United States. Today, is Russia hostile to China? Is Russia hostile to Pakistan? I'm not sure. I mean, you know, you have a lot of people, who I am told that there's been a lot of trolling because uh, the Sweden Foundation went and put S-400 at the right at the top of this particular speech mm-hmm. when frankly S-400 is a very tiny little segment of the whole thing. So I was told a lot of trolling because they're saying you're anti-Russian. Last year they conducted joint military exercises with Pakistan. Uh, well, I can assure you from the information I have, they're doing a lot more that's joint. Uh, The Chinese are helping Pakistan big time in technology and the Russians are helping the Chinese big time in technology. And let's be honest, that, I mean, that route. That's right. You're perfectly right. So what I'm trying to say is, please don't think today's Russia is 1971 Russia. What about the United States? Where does the United States come inside? And again, as I said, there was some trolling about me. And, and the United States. I'd like to say very clearly. I have sometimes attacked the United States. I sometimes attacked China. I sometimes praised China. I sometimes praised the United States. Because essentially my passport is Indian. And I believe in some ways they are helpful to us. In some ways they are not. Any country. But what is the, the, the position today? Today what are, what need to be our strategic objectives? The question of mastery of the Eurasian landmass. And claiming the Eurasian landmass back from China is in my view a lost cause. If you're a businessman setting up a company and the company is I mean is gone in a particular direction there's no point wasting more time and effort and trying to get into the Eurasian landmass today we are never going to regain control of it for quite some time to come. Let's be honest. We need domination of the Indo-Pacific. We need domination of virtual space, we need domination of outer space, we need domination of undersea uh, situations, we need domination of advanced technology. In all these fields, I want to ask you, are we going to be welcome in a defense, security and technology partnership where China and Pakistan are joined at the hip? Are we going to be able to rely on a country that has today become an associate of China? I don't want to use a more, a less polite word, but I would, I am using the word associate an obvious associate of China. Uh, From the security point of view, in my opinion, if any of us believe that we have an option of joining the Chinese security system, we'll have to get permission from ghq rawalpindi first so please let's talk to the generals let's hand them kashmir let's do whatever else they want us to do and then maybe they'll say okay you know the the chinese can accept you we haven't even managed to get uh, the veto removed on the nuclear suppliers group now the nuclear suppliers group 90 i mean uh, I, let me tell you about my university when the discussions were going on on this nuclear uh, agreement between india and the us my university set up a Department of Atomic Physics, because the perception was TIFR and other things are going to be sanctioned. If you are going to be sanctioned, you can't do research, because if you are a sanctioned organization, six months ahead of your research, you've got to give information. Nobody does research in those conditions. Research in six weeks or six days even may be too long. So there needed to be other platforms where you could do atomic research, if these sanctions came we volunteered and we have set up a very good department of, of nuclear physics under dr mohini gupta a first class nuclear person but luckily that is not necessary because the sanctions were much much less uh, harmful in nature and one of the reasons for that was there were three or four people myself bharat karnad i mean uh, you know brahma Chalani and a few others we check organizer and check nalapad nu- nuclear you'll see a Pretty, a whole lot of stuff. The game was very simple. Key people, key scientists would brief me. And I directioned them to other people. Some key scientists would brief the others who wrote against it. And we used to write very informed pieces as to why the American stance was wrong and why they had to dilute their stance. And Prime Minister Manmohan Singh would then go to George Bush and say, look, you have all these crazy guys writing all these terrible things and you have all these uh, you know things happening for god's sake help me make make your dilute your conditions a little and they diluted their conditions quite a lot uh, i think we were therefore very helpful frankly the kind of articles that i wrote in organizer i must have written about more than 20 pieces in organizer on a, on something i know absolutely nothing about which is nuclear science i'd like to say and i was well briefed we used to have these briefings early in the morning. Supposing you're a scientist, you take an early morning flight from Bombay to Delhi. You'll have, you know, have breakfast with me. At that point in time, we didn't have an aero city or whatever. So we had to have breakfast in some other place near the Gurgaon side. And two or three hours later, they would go up and they would give me enough information for my next organizer piece. Which came out uh, fortunately very well. And again, I want to become a little more autobiographical here. Uh, I was not a friend of Sonia Gandhi, and Mrs. Gandhi got to Mr. Pradesh Mishra and to Mr. Vajpayee. And at least twice Mr. Vajpayee requested Sudarshan to stop publishing my articles in organizer. The mistake that was made was the first time Pradesh uh, Mishra briefed that look, I'm a Chinese spy. So don't carry Chinese spies in organizer. After five or six months when Sudarshan just refused to listen and my articles used to keep coming. Again, Rajesh Mishra came in the picture and said, you know, this American spy, don't carry his pieces. So, I said, I'm Chinese or I'm American, I can't be both. So, Mr. Sudarshan decided probably that, look, if he's both American and he's a Chinese spy, he's exactly the kind of person who should write for organizer. Nobody disturbed me. I kept writing for organizer right through the period when Sonia Gandhi did her level best. She didn't dare to go after me in radiance. But she tried very hard to go after me and organize her. I'm happy to say that Sudarshanji stood by me. The organizer, editor of that time, Sheshadri Chari, stood by me and I continued writing for them. Anyway, but that's a different story. What I want to say is that I don't believe, frankly, that the Chinese military alliance is an option for India. Now, we can as well say, what is the other alliance? Look, the other alliance regrettably or not, is an alliance led by a country named the United States or we can say we can be neutral, we can sit on the fence and we can be neutral. I'm not very sure that that's the optimum thing for I'll tell you why. Domination of the Indo-Pacific is important for us. I would like to see a very strong radar array in the Andaman Islands that can track even a large fish coming through the Indian Ocean, that can only be put together with the help of either the Russians and the Chinese or the Americans. If it's the Russians and the Chinese, I mean, if any of the people who have trolled me can certify that they will not communicate that information to Pakistan, I'll be happy to accept that their trolling is correct. But I don't believe that's going to happen, the Americans are, in my view, the only people we can set up this kind of a major radar facility the way they have in Australia the way they have in Japan so we can track what is happening in the Indian Ocean secondly Wahhabism it's a tremendous threat to the to the whole world Wahhabism and in my view what is likely to happen it is very likely that you're going to see an effort at bringing down the established structures in the Middle East the established structures in the Middle East, now in 2011, if you Google, you will see that I wrote very early on, the Arab Spring is going to become a Wahhabi winter. My prediction was, what you're talking about the Arab Spring, you know, Hillary Clinton and all these people, Obama, highly, all of them, rah-rah, I said, nothing doing, you're going to have a Wahhabi winter, unfortunately, the Wahhabis did, you know, take control, and unfortunately, that's what happened. If you look at the Russian Revolution, you had a situation in which democratic forces came together and the Bolsheviks took power. If you look at Iran, all the democratic anti-monarchical people came together. They weakened the Shah and ultimately a very strong, small, organized group, namely the Khomeini took over. The Wahhabis are small, strong, and organized. And unfortunately, in, that, in, the, in, the, in the kind of chaos that is likely to follow, the Gulf, GCC countries, if there has a meltdown, these are the guys who are going to take over. That That's the reality. If that happens, there are a very large number of Indians who are working there. I don't want to name the exact amount of Indians, except to say that more than 30% come from my home state of Kerala. So I have a particular interest, being a, a, a regional fanatic, I have a particular interest in seeing to the security and stability of that. In that situation, we may need to even intervene kinetically to ensure that these structures are able to resist the pull of Wahhabism. We may need to, we, we need to get involved in alliances where our alliance has, a, has the dominant stake in the Indian the Ocean and the, in the Pacific, in the Indo-Pacific. We have lost primacy on the land, on space, in cyberspace. And in the oceans, we have to retain primacy. Personally, I don't see any other way other than an agreement with the United States. And today what's happening, it's happening de facto. You know, we talk about, I mean, the First World War and Second World War. And we talk about the, you know, the policy that we had. We we didn't support the British in the Second World War. Look, we had two and a half million Indians fighting the First World War. We had two and a half million Indians fighting the Second World War. We had about 12 million Indian auxiliaries in the First World War. 16 million Indian auxiliaries in the Second World War. Frankly, the effort by our very saintly uh, Mahatma to try and prevent people from joining that war did not work. And the saintly Mahatma said, I am neutral between Britain and Japan. I am neutral between the Axis and the Allies. While a person who was not saintly at all, namely a chap called Muhammad Ali Jinnah, he said, I love Britain. I love America. I love the Allies. I hate the Axis. I've and I have told all my people go to the army, join the army. Well, frankly, much more people, you know, Hindus join the army than Muslims. But Mr. Jinnah, from that time onwards, Pakistan was assured. From the time we adopted neutrality onwards, which is actually 1939, mistake number one, surrendering all the authority in the provincial governments, and number 1942, uh, I mean, quit India, Uh, they didn't quit India. But the fact is, they would have quit India, because the first world, the Britain was a wounded, fatally wounded power at the end of the first world war. Britain, France, Germany, all these European powers were fatally wounded at the end of the first world war. They were somehow staggering till the second world war. Second world war, they they were collapsed. So there was no question that freedom would come, but unfortunately, because Mr. Jinnah was a strong supporter of the allies and we in a very, you know, in the very nice way we were balanced, we were non-aligned between the Axis and the allies, they decided let's break this uh, uh, country up. Again I want to tell you about, you know, about China, Mao Mao Zedong took over China. He went into Tibet, he went into Xinjiang. He went into Inner Mongolia, he went into Manchuria. I mean, apart from uh, Taiwan, which is you know which a whole which is, which is there, every other place he went into, and he's of course he went into Aksai Chin also, and he went into some other locations as well. In the case exactly, uh, in the case of uh, of of India, because we are saintly people and our leaders are extremely saintly, and I would like to say as a as someone who believes in peace, I have the greatest admiration for Indian leaders. I have the greatest admiration for our the leaders of freedom movement. I think I have, the world has never met a more self-sacrificing and saintly group of people than this. The British, basically, we were supposed to be the inheritors of British India. British India ran the Middle East. The rupee was the currency of the Middle East. British India ran Southeast Asia. It was, I mean, Burma was part of British India. Uh, what is Pakistan, Bangladesh, part of British India? Sri Lanka, part of British India, Nepal, under Ranas, keen on coming back. Uh, I mean, Gwadar, the Sultan of Oman offered it to us. I mean, but what, what we decided, you know, we are self-sacrificing people, so we what what was left of our India. Is about one third. What was what China doubled in size, and we were reduced by about more than 40%. If you look at Burma and all that, more than 40%. So that's the difference between that leadership and, and the leadership that took over power in India. It's a big difference. And I can tell you that leadership has not changed. That single minded drive towards being the middle kingdom has not changed. In 1947, the Chinese economy was a roughly 41% of the Indian economy. Today, we are we are less than one-fifth one fifth of the Chinese economy. They must have done something right, and we must be doing something not entirely right. You know, I'm, I'm just saying that. So let's be honest. What are our options? A two and a half trillion economy being neutral in a war. Frankly, we're talking of 5 trillion, unless you have a minimum of 10 to 15 trillion. And you're talking about strategic autonomy. Strategic autonomy in a country where 83% of our crucial core defense equipment is imported. Strategic autonomy when you have to run for your supply from all kinds of different countries and to to get your supply. When about 70% of essential technologies in defense and security are imported. And you're talking of strategic autonomy, we have to keep our strategic autonomy. I mean, what are we talking about? You know, I am from the private sector. I have not spent one day in any government department, anywhere. And I am in. I am entirely from the private sector. In the private sector, we survive based on reality. We survive based on our own two feet. And we don't survive because of some, you know, uh, illusions or because of some exchequer, or because we are fed by the, by, you know, by, by the state. We survive on our own two feet, and our thinking has always been the basis of realism. So we are talking of strategic autonomy, and what strategic autonomy are we talking about? Whether we should be basically running after this country or that country. That's our strategic autonomy. Whether it should be France or Russia or Israel or United States. That's all. That's the strategic autonomy that we're talking about. So I want to say this is the context in which i was writing about the s-400 as as you know as i can say quite honestly i think as i said in these two countries i have a fair amount of knowledge in these two countries i want to repeat i have great admiration for both china and the united states i have a reasonable amount of access in both china and the united states in that situation i can tell you so far the united states is concerned the s-400 deal If you do that, you're basically saying, you are not interested in a full-fledged military relationship with us. Today's America and today's Russia are different. Today's America is certainly no friend of China. Today's America is no friend of Bahabism. Mohammed bin Salman, I've written multiple articles supporting Mohammed bin Salman. He has some very unorthodox methods of population control, which I'm not going to go into. But whatever it is, the fact of the matter is, on Bahabism, for the first time today, if you are a Hindu and you pray in your house, the police cannot come in, arrest you, and sometimes even execute you. For the first time today, boys and girls can walk hand in hand. For the first time today, you can watch movies in a hall, and everybody around you, all your Arab neighbors will see you watching some Hindi movie, or some Malayalam, most likely Malayalam movie, I would like to say, because there are so many Malayalis out there, and so you'll probably have as many Malayalam movies as Hindi movies. But you can watch them now. He is the first Al Saud to challenge Wahhabism. Donald Trump is the first individual to break out of the Wahhabi lobby. Unfortunately, sometimes the lobby gets the better of him. For example, Imran Khan, if you read Sunday Guardian, I wrote a detailed piece from Washington how the Wahhabi lobby is basically responsible for Imran Khan's appointment with Donald Trump, Lindsey Graham, uh, you know, uh, Tom Barak, and various others. And, and fortunately for me, for my credibility, what I would like to say, the next day, the New York Times got a front page report naming some of these people as part of the Wahhabi lobby. So I was, uh, I mean, I beat the New York Times by 24 hours. Sunday Guardian beat the New York Times. What I'm trying to say is that If you want to fight Wahhabism, which is your partner? If you want to uh, dominate the Indo-Pacific, which is your partner? I want to ask you about China. China is a very brilliant policy. They are not going to fight anybody unless they are themselves involved. Don't forget that no Muslim country has raised one word of condemnation on what they are doing in Xinjiang. Nor has Professor Nalapat, I'd like to say very clearly, uh, at all. Because I would only like to say, wherever in the world there is some problem regarding Wahhabism, I have never taken the side of the Wahhabis. So I support Mohammed bin Salman, I support General Al Sisi. I'm not saying I support, but I can quite, but what, what has happened in, you know, in Xinjiang. Now if we had, for example, asked them, you are defending Article 370 in India. What about a 370 in Xinjiang? What about preventing people who are not Uyghurs from coming into Xinjiang? Today, I think more there are more people who are Han than who are Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Where is 370 there? There is no 370. So frankly, in my view, as an old friend of China, they have made a big mistake in this. Because now the Americans and the Europeans are going to tell them, you love 370 so much, please do it in Tibet. Please do it in Xinjiang. Please do it in you know in Hong Kong. Please start implementing. We are not. We don't like 370. We stood by India, but you like 370. So go ahead. You understand. So that I think personally, I think it's a self goal uh, which they have made. And I think being very close to Pakistan, they are going to make several more self goals in the future. I am a little sorry about that. But what I want to say, frankly, the S 400 system will just suck up every single bit of information about any flying object. Like a huge radar array will suck up information about any undersea or surface vessel or even a fish that moves in the ocean. Turkey is now moving out of NATO. The reason is Erdogan is the Turkish leader who has surrendered to the Wahhabis. The Wahhabis were very influential during the First World War in in enabling the, uh, the British to Basically, capture the Arab states by telling the Arab states these Sufi Turks are not Muslim. We Wahhabis are Muslim. Wahhabis were very strongly backed by the British, and if you read the history of that period, you'll understand what I'm talking about. Today, you have a Turkish president who has surrendered to Wahhabism and kicked out the legacy of Kemal Ataturk, which was an anti Wahhabi legacy. So, you have they are now going to be sanctioned, the F-35 has already gone. In the past, the, um, the Russians gave us technology, the Russians gave us a lot of very important stuff. Today, the Americans have publicly said, they are ready to transfer entire lines of aircraft production to India. They are ready to move, the, there is an F-35 assembly line, which is moving from Turkey. They're, they're the, you know, If we play our cards right, that can move to India. There are a lot of companies that are now moving from China. If we play our cards right, those companies can move to India. But they can move to India only if you are a member of a security system that is different from the security system controlled by China and in which the most important component is Russia and one of the most influential components is Pakistan. That is why I'm saying signing the S-400 is part of what I would say, this narrow, segmented, service-oriented point of view in taking decisions that are so destructive to the overall national interest. The overall national interest deserves a 360-degree look at the whole situation. So you don't factor in the effect of uh, of S-400 into, you say, it's a great system. From an Air Force point of view, wonderful system. It's a terrific radar array, but then you will not be a security ally of the United States. You will not get US platforms coming to you. You are not going to have uh, help on radar arrays and other things. You will essentially be on the shelf, non-aligned, as we were during the time of Pandit Nehru and Indira Gandhi, and a a wonderful non-aligned state, a Cold War era, we're going to go back into that. Today, let's be blunt. I, I choose sides. I chose Xi Jinping's side in China. I strongly wrote in defense of Xi Jinping. The man is doing a really remarkable job in China. I chose Donald Trump in the United States. There's a newspaper called Pakistan Observer. By the way, Among the uh, another newspaper that was to regularly carry me was a, a newspaper called Pakistan Observer. So from that time, from the time when Sonia Gandhi barred me in <coughs> India, I used to write regularly and I'm, I keep writing for them. And... You know, the the point of the matter is, Donald Trump, in in 2015 of July, my first article in Pakistan Observer came supporting Donald Trump. After that, I wrote about 30 articles supporting Mr. Trump. So I take sides. On security, we have to align with the United States. We have no other option. It's either the United States or this wonderful, you know, nirvana of, if I may say so, non-alignment. Because so the Chinese are certainly not going to accept you. The Pakistanis have got a veto. If they won't accept you in the NSG, they're not going to accept you as a security partner. Please, please allow, please, you know, let's be real about this whole thing. So that is the, the the that's why I raised the whole issue of the S-400. That's why I wrote the issue. On trade, it's a different matter. On trade, there are ways in which China can be helpful to us. For example, on mobile phones. About 50 to 55 billion dollars worth of Chinese mobiles we are buying. Yes, a lot of money has been spent on that. My my very, very old friend, good dear friend S. Gurumurthy is extremely upset about that. The Sudeshi Jagran manch who knows me very well and I, you know, I know them well. I have great respect for them. I have great respect for Guru by the way. He is really my guru as well. But you know, they don't like it. But the fact is, because of those cheaper mobiles, about 200 million more Indians have access to the internet. Because they are much cheaper than Korean mobiles and much cheaper than than Scandinavian mobiles and much cheaper than American mobiles. So because of the cheapness of the mobile, at least 200 million people have got access to the net. And again, I repeat Wahhabism, not not Iran. I am certainly not in favor of us joining the American crusade on Iran for two or three reasons. One, we have got access through Chabahar to Central Asia, and to Afghanistan. Two, we have already got a very strong Wahhabi terror network, which we are fighting. I don't want a Shia network also as a second front in the war on terror. The Shia network is much more deadly than any Wahhabi network. I don't want that. So I'm totally opposed to the way in which we have stopped oil uh, purchases from Iran. In my view, we should have purchased oil from Iran and blocked S-400. I'm not saying, for heaven's sake, give the Russians money. Why only 5 billion? Give them 20 billion. Whatever, you know, but don't, this 5 billion you can give them for other equipment. There's so much of equipment that we buy from them. You don't have to give to them for for something that is going to destroy the possibility of a strong security relationship with the United States. That was my only point about S-400. I'm not arguing with those Air Force chaps who say it's a brilliant thing. I'm not arguing with anybody else. And, and you're most welcome to say that, you know, I mean, uh, depending on the, on, on the day, whether I'm a Chinese agent or an American agent or a Nepalese agent or a Sri Lankan agent. You're most welcome to call me that. My point is we are at a very dangerous point in our history. We need rapid economic growth. We need a 10 to 15 trillion economy. Frankly, I wrote in Sunday Guardian for the five years of Modi, I've only seen 20% Modi. After Balakot and after 370, I'm saying I'm seeing 80% of Modi. I'm happy. I love uh, Modi. It's a totally one sided thing. It's completely unreciprocated. But I have great admiration for that man. And, but he's still got 20%. And that 20% is the finance ministry, which frankly is not doing a good job for the last five years, not doing a good job at all. And it is slowing back growth in India. So the 20% that is not Modi is still the finance ministry. I hope the Prime Minister, you know, takes, I mean, basically will do something. So it becomes 99% Modi. Uh, look, we started Sunday Guardian to support Modi. At that point in time, nobody was supporting Modi. Today we still support Modi, but everybody is supporting Modi. You know, and we are surrounded by Modi, people who support Modi. And in those days, we were completely isolated. I don't want to name some very big business people who are considered to be very close to Mr. Modi. We did a, we had a supplement, a 40 page supplement, which you can go online and see as to why Narendra Modi is the best political administrator in India. We tried very hard to get advertising from some of these people who are always hanging around Mr. Modi. Sorry, we can't do it. Ahmad Patel will get upset. Sonia Gandhi will get upset. Chidambaram will get upset. I mean, you know, so we didn't get any of those advertisements. I'm sorry to say, I'm a private sector guy. I don't think getting advertisements is wrong. None of them gave us any advertisements. So, so don't get me wrong. I can tell you. So, on that, uh, we are we are at a very crucial stage in our history. We need to take some very clear decisions. We took a decision in 1939 to give up all our uh, uh, all the the the, the Congress governments we took a decision 1942 to be neutral in a world war we took many decisions we have we took a decision to reject a un security council seat we took many decisions like that which have come back to haunt us i'm sorry to say you're perfectly right exactly and not just i mean there are other parts of the world bangladesh for example you know 1951 52 Four hundred and thirty thousand Hindus were massacred in Bangladesh. That was the time to go and take over. We had the military. Still, Nehru had not destroyed the military by that time. Nothing happened. In fact, it was completely. I mean, I'm sorry that Siddharth Patel, uh, you know, uh, I mean, was not with us. For, but you know, as I said, as I said, we are we are now at a we are now confronting a very delicate geopolitical situation we have to take 360 degree correct decisions based 100% on our national interest. It's in this context that I wrote about S-400. And oh, because if this means no security, and I can tell you the happiest countries will be China and Pakistan if we, sign the, if we go ahead with S-400. The happiest countries will be China and Pakistan. Russia's biggest gift to China will be the S-400 sale to India. For the simple reason that that means their nightmare of a security alliance with America is over. Thank you very much.